0: You know, really, I got a really neat report, even this week, uh, a couple of brothers went to visit a man and there was another man that was around as they were studying the book of Romans, in peace with God, in Romans 5, if I have it right, and the man joined the study and listened and heard the word of God, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And that man came to place his faith in Christ this week and just start on his journey with Christ and living for him. To have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ is a wonderful thing. It's the best in life. It's great to know him. It's wonderful to live for him. But it's not easy to live for Jesus Christ. There are challenges He's not our culture's favorite anymore, as if he was ever the favorite. I mean, they killed him in his day, and that's been the disposition of the world and its system toward our Christ. But I find in my own walk with Christ that there are other problems than just the world out there, (laughs) the chief of which is me. In life, I am my biggest enemy. I cause most of my problems. It is the same in my spiritual life. In fact, my flesh plagues me. Like an anvil around my neck, when I'm asked to walk up an incline, I feel its weight and its drag. In spite of my best intentions, it doesn't always turn out well. What is that? What is it about struggling with ourselves in this good way following jesus let's consider this morning the nature of the experience of walking with jesus christ in life by looking together at romans chapter 7 verses 13 through 20 turn there with me this morning please if you're new we are walking through the book of romans paragraph by paragraph this glorious book that unpacks the good news about jesus And talks about the gift of righteousness which comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Now in this chapter, Paul is answering the question of the critics who are saying to Paul, Paul, you have just trashed the law of God. Because, Paul, if you are saying we can't use the law, obey the law, do this, don't do that, and that's how we relate to God. If you're saying we relate to God by his grace, as he forgives us of our sin, as we believe in Jesus, then what's with the law? You're trashing the law, Paul, in saying that. So in chapter 7, we've looked at this before, but let me just refresh your memory He takes the critics on head on in verse 7. In verse 12, we've already looked at these verses. What then shall we say? Are we to say that the law is sin? Absolutely not, he says. Verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now he's going to talk in verse 16. Listen for it as I read it to you. The law that is good. And so God uses the law in our lives, and the law is good, and his purpose for the law works good in our lives. So I want to read this to you this morning, Romans 7, 13 through 20. Did that which is good then, he's talking about the law, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, this morning... I want to answer three questions. The questions will form the outline of our time together today. Question number one, as we read this and look up, we say, what is Paul saying? What is the reasoning that he uses in this passage? What is he getting at? What is he doing? Secondly, then, we come to the big elephant. In the room, the interpretive question Who was Paul talking about? Is he talking about people who have already begun a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith? Or is he talking about people who have never come to faith in Christ yet? And we'll look at that. How do we answer that question? Finally, what about living? For Christ in our age. How can we pull that off if this is true? Because in the bosom of every follower of Jesus Christ, given the fact that he loved us and gave himself for us, is a yearning to honor him with our living. So first, what is the Apostle Paul's reasoning in these verses? What's the logic of this passage? What is he doing with this passage? There are two assertions here under this first point. Number one, here's what he says. Let's blame the right party for our struggle. It's not the law's part. It's not the law's part. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 16. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Oh, I get it. I'll blame the law. The law is the problem by no means. No, the law's not the problem. That's what he says. Look at verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. that the law is right when it says how I should live. And when I break it and realize that, I actually say that the law is good in pointing that out. It is the right way to live. Now, critics, again, they're saying Paul's trashing the law. There is a struggle... In the Christian life, in our attempts to live for Christ. Am I the only one in the room that finds struggle? Am I a one and only? From where does the struggle come? By the way, a part of overcoming any struggle is to understand it. And that's what Paul's doing here. That's his purpose. Look at 7.12. So the law is holy. Holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Don't blame the law. Remember that there used to be a uh, comedian in the '70s. Uh, and if you're born in the '80s, you don't remember, or the '90s or the 2000s. If you're old, you might remember. So I, I, I remember, momentarily, <laughs> uh, there's a comedian, and he was always arguing that his bad behavior was attributable to the devil. His classic line was, of course, the devil made me do it. And in saying that, he was divesting himself of all responsibility for what happened. Why? He couldn't be held responsible or accountable because the devil made him do it. Well, Paul is saying, don't you dare say that what's wrong with my life and the reason there's conflict in my life is because of the law of God. If God had never given the law, I wouldn't have this conflict. And it's the law's fault. Paul says out loud, no, you have it wrong. That's not a way to look at the conflict. Now, the second assertion is this. Our struggle is with our sinful flesh. Humanity, we've all inherited the same flesh. The flesh tainted with the sin of Adam. And so we have in our flesh the residual effects of sin. And a gravitational pull, not toward righteousness, but toward sin. The presence of indwelling sin in our flesh. Now, um, look at verse 17. Sin that dwells within me. Verse 18, nothing good dwells in me. Verse 20, sin that dwells within me. Now, identifying the enemy is the first step to facing the war and gaining victory. We are in a battle. Remember the Apostle John's characterization of the battle. when He said in 1 John 2.16, All that is in the world and in the world's systems against which we push is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The power of indwelling sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, our covetous heart yearning for things, and our pride, the boastful pride of life. thats The world's system is made that way. We live in that system and are affected by it. Having a high regard for the weakness of our s- sinful flesh because of indwelling sin will help us. It will help us understand what we're going through in dwelling sin. Now we are a beautiful, marvelous, soul-bodied unity. We're not a soul with a body and our soul's good and our body's evil. Our body is incredible. And in union, we are embodied. We're not separate from our body. We are a soul-bodied unity, and our embodiment matters. That affects this whole gender debate. This is how we were made. Now, in that embodiment, made as we are with Adam's flesh, we need to realize that there is the presence in our bodies, in our flesh, of indwelling sin. It's like if you exert yourself, or if I exert myself in exercise, strenuous exercise, God made our muscles to respond in a particular way and to secrete lactic acid. And I actually, I, I should have asked somebody real smart like Joe Martin, you know, what, why this is so. But uh, our, our, our bodies secrete lactic acid as we exert ourselves. And it has a purpose in the exertion, lost on me right now, but it hangs around. And the more you exert, the more lactic acid you will produce. So much so that the next day, and and my garden variety description would be that lactic acid is like rigor mortis' cousin. Because the next day, you can hardly move. And you're saying to yourself, oh, that muscle's really sore. Oh, i got to pick my leg up to walk. Because you have the presence, a residual presence in your muscles of that lactic acid as a result of the exertion previously that you were involved in. In the same way, inherit as we have these marvelous bodies living in an embodied self that is one and not separated. It's, it's all one, a souled body, a bodied soul Living as we are with the lactic acid hanging around from Adam. The residual that is there. The presence of indwelling sin. I thought of the end of Psalm 73, which is so beautiful and I love it. Where David says, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever what's going on what's his reasoning he's saying don't blame the law our issue is the presence of indwelling sin so then you come to the interpretive elephant in the room who's involved in this struggle now it's the old they have cut down a lot of trees and made paper and written on the paper to try to resolve this once and for all through the years who is this is it the person who is not yet delivered from their sin? They're not saved. That's what saved means, to be delivered. They don't know Jesus as their Savior. They've never begun with him. Is that who is being described? Well, that would make sense that there's a struggle because they don't know Jesus. Because, the line of reasoning goes, if you know Jesus, you don't have a struggle. The problem is, that's not what Paul says. Because another view is, no, what is described here is the normal Christian life. The normal, pedestrian, commonplace Christian life includes, newsflash, struggle. It's a part of it. It's endemic to its very nature because it works against our flesh. In fact, the whole vision that the Apostle Paul has for growing up in Christ and maturing, that fancy $8 word sanctification, is that we put off the old person? Remember the picture of baptism? This is who I was before I came to know Jesus? That person's died and buried, and I'm raised up in new life. Put off the old person, put on the new. Remember that fascinating phrase? It sounded cool, nobody knew what it was. Uh, but in the old King James translation, the uh, mortify your flesh. You know, you knew mortification had something to do with death. Uh, so it's like, Put to de- death the deeds of your flesh. And so that's what's going on here. And that's the Christian life. So another view is that this, what is being talked about is the Christian life. This is how it is in all of its unvarnished reality. Now there's a third view that says, No, no, what is going on here is like people who are trying to use the law to make God accept them. So they're trying to keep all the rules and feel better about themselves and call the keeping of the rules what it meant to be religious and spiritual. And one could say that um, uh, another take on this would be, this is about fundamentalist Christians who were into legalism. who, 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 For them, the sum and total of everything was just keeping the rules. And if you kept the rules... Then you, were, you 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 made it. You prayed enough, obeyed enough, believed enough, went to church enough, and gave enough. Then, then if you enough enough, then you could be found accepted. And so they're frustrated because they're never enough, which is true. And some argue that's what's going on in this passage now. Uh, so there's different views. Let's make an observation, then let me answer the question. Observation is this. A, the Apostle Paul speaks in the first person in these verses. See, who cares? Well, who wrote it? Who is he? What is he saying? I've read it to you. You know what he's saying. Paul uses the first person. He's talking about himself and his own experience. Secondly, he uses the present tense. He doesn't say, this is what my life used to be like before I came to know Jesus pre-Damascus Road. It was a real struggle. No, he's talking about post-Damascus Road, post the time that he began with Jesus. As he's walking with Jesus, he says, this is the real struggle. This is what it's like. He uses the present tense for the verbs. If this is the present experience of the Apostle Paul, then... It has to be the experience of followers of Jesus Christ. Unless you conclude, I'll tell you what, Eric, I need to lead Paul to Christ. He's not a Christian. Because if he was a Christian, he wouldn't write something like this. But of course, that's, that's not true. Paul is a follower of Jesus. We know of his conversion story in the narrative from the book of Acts. So here you have a bona fide follower of Jesus who's experiencing the struggle. Why? Oh, he must not have been a very good Christian. No, maybe our definition of the Christian life is not very good, and we need to have Romans chapter 7 straighten it out, because it is a life full of challenge. Now the answer then, who's involved in the struggle in this passage Everyone who has ever tried to live the Christian life relates to this passage. 7.15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. One commentator very wisely noted that this is the only place in the New Testament that references that Paul was a golfer. Now, I love to play golf. I, I, I'm not very good. Uh, uh, bogey golf, uh, and Andy and I are right together. What together. Why we enjoy golf is... Um we, we compete against each other with every match, and every math- match is a death match, and there are no given putts, and it's all for blood and gluts, never for fun, and we taunt each other. I've hit a good shot on a par three before and felt really proud of myself, and then watched her hit inside my ball and kiss her club all the way back to the cart. That's not right. I'm still trying to get that straightened out. We love golf, but playing golf, it's funny to watch people play golf because notwithstanding your best thoughts about where your ball is going to go. In your, you know, in my mind, I am one incredible golfer. <laughs> and we are told, you know, visualize where your shot's going to go so I can stand up there and tee the ball up and I can look down that beautiful, well-manicured fairway that bends a little bit to the right and has that lagoon on the right, you know, and, and I, in my mind's eye, I, I know exactly where it's going. And it's funny to listen to golf banter. Um, some are real sympathetic and they feel bad because they're in the struggle too and they hit bad shots. And others are just incessant mockers and, you know, light you up, you know. And, and I love, my, one of my favorite golf comments is a guy who stands up there and, you know, goes through the 30-minute waggle or whatever it is, you know. And he finally hits the ball. And it, it caroms just some terrible shot. And it goes right in the water in, into an ignominious splash. And everybody standing on the tee has heard it. And he reaches down and picks up his tee. And I think it's my favorite comment. Just really understated, headed to the cart. He says, you know, in my own mind, it, it, it looks so much better than that. you know, <laughs> Because you thought of how it was going to be. And yet in reality, it was nothing like what you thought. Well, some argue Paul's a golfer. And his description of the struggle of the Christian life, the real, actual struggle of the Christian life, that's a picture of it. That's what it's like. Now, living for Christ, in that sense, is a little bit like golf. But it is in the weakness of our realized imperfections that we come to see the beauty of Christ and the power of Christ at work in our lives. But we cannot see that, nor will we be dependent on that until we come to grips with the fact that we keep hitting the ball in the lagoon. And it's then that we see Jesus for who he is and come to him for his, his strength. This is not an aberration in Romans chapter 7, a bad day that Paul was having as he was writing. This is the real stuff of normal life following Jesus. Now then, what are we to conclude about living life for Jesus Christ? There are three realities that will quicken our step and help us. Number one, the normal Christian life is difficult and a struggle with our own flesh. If you struggle, welcome to the club. It's the greatest club on earth and in heaven to be involved in. Did you ever imagine concession to struggle would be such an encouragement? It is here from Romans 7, is it not? Thomas Akempis, in his book, The Imitation of Christ, wrote this. In a prayer to God, I desire to enjoy you inwardly, but I cannot take you. I desire to cleave to heavenly things, but fleshly things and unmortified passions depress me. I will in my mind to be above all things, but in spite of myself, I am constrained to be beneath. So I, unhappy man, fight with myself and am made grievous to myself while the Spirit seeks what is beneath. Oh, what I suffer within, while as I think on heavenly things in my mind, the company of fleshly things comes against me when I pray. End of quote. The reason that quote is hung around is because it rings so true to form. Now, in counseling, in trying to offer someone a biblical perspective on what they might be going through, One verse that has got a lot of mileage through the year, and one statement is, Dear friend, you are right where anyone who is in your circumstances would be. One of the tricks of the enemy of our soul, Satan, is he loves to get us in a dark room and then tell us, You know what? Nobody's ever been here before. You're the only one. And you're here because something's wrong with you. And you ought to just give up and quit living for this Jesus. Because you really stink at it. Uh, I was at a forum once with a guy. And there's all these hoity toity people there. They were asking us questions. And he asked this guy, well, tell us about your spiritual life. And he used some language, it wasn't seemingly, but basically he says, I have a really awful spiritual life. It was an interesting comment. He said, it's bad. Well, wouldn't Paul say, you know what, the very good things I try to do, I, I do." he'd say, you know, I, my, my spiritual, the conflict of the spiritual life is normal and usual. You say, Eric, I'm, I'm in, a, in the midst of a struggle. Oh, Your consciousness of the struggle bears the distinguishing mark that the Spirit of God is working in your life. Don't give up. Don't give up. No trial has taken you but such as is common to man. One inducement to give us encouragement is to remember that the struggle of indwelling sin in our flesh is the common, everyday, pedestrian, experience of followers of Jesus Christ Eric where'd you get that Romans chapter 7 now and that's an odd encouragement but a strong one secondly we often miss our best intentions to live for Jesus Christ Eric I come there I look at people I can tell they're just living those perfect lives I'm nothing like them I'm afraid somebody's going to find out about me. I don't want to join an adult Bible fellowship class. I don't want to be in a life group because somebody may find out that I, I have some hang-ups. And I have some besetting things that I'm trying to give up. I, I don't want anybody to get to know me. I'll just walk around like everybody else and so hold my Bible or my phone or whatever I'm holding and, and, and I'll make it look like everything's way okay and I'm really in good shape. Uh, beginning with the preacher, we're all involved In the conflict of living for Christ. And the biggest part of that conflict is me when it comes to my own walk with Jesus. We beat up, we are beat up by our own failures. Is that you this morning? This passage can be an odd sense of comfort. Don't be discouraged. Isn't it fair to say Paul understands? Since moved by the Holy Spirit, it is the word of God. Isn't it fair to say that God understands? And Jesus Christ is a sympathetic high priest. Our weakness and inability bring us afresh to God's ability and sufficiency. And without the weakness, we would have little appreciation for the strength of God. Without our struggle, we would have l- less appreciation for the perfections of Jesus Christ. Drew Baker has preached here several times. My roommate, best friend. Drew and I had a friend in college. He was only sanctified enough to last 20 weeks at Cedarville. That was in the days they were on quarters, you know, 10 weeks fall, 10 weeks winter. And then they called him in and said, look, why don't you go back to New Hampshire and grow up and get your life straightened out and then come back someday if you want to try. Well, he went to the Army recruiter's office and joined the Army he became an Army Ranger and went through the enlistment. became a colonel, 25 years of Special Forces, and the greatest dinner company that Andy and I have ever known, the stories he could tell. It just keep you captivated as you ate your food, just amazing experiences he's involved in. But he, he, uh, he was with this unit, uh, the, the uh, Special Forces group out of uh, Fort Carson in uh, Colorado Springs, I think. And uh, he gave us his coin. And uh, I think it was 3rd Special Forces Group. I forget the number. But we had, it's, it's a cool coin, challenge coin. And he told us about the tradition of the military, the challenge coin. you Give it to each other. And he talked about the harassment that, they, you know, they're always coin checking each other. And if you don't have your coin when they check you, you have to give them PT, physical therapy, usually in the form of uh, our physical training, not therapy, <laughs> <laughs> physical training. And so uh you know if you didn't have your coin, your coin checked, um, you know, you you had to do twenty-five push-ups or something like that. Well, and, and it got so ridiculous, they would uh, they would coin check him in the shower, you know, to get to get push-ups out of him in the shower. And so he would put his coin on the bottom of the soap dish. So if somebody coin checked him in the shower, he'd just show him the soap dish to keep showering, you know. Uh well, Uh, We thought that was great to receive his coin. He told us about this tradition. So then we were smart Alex. We thought, hey, we're going to be with him for the weekend. Why don't we, you know, we'll coin check him every once in a while. And so we coin checked him and he had his coin. So he said, all right, 25 pushups, you guys. And so, um, you know, that was in a season of my life where um, I wasn't doing many pushups. And uh, so I thought, oh, 25 pushups, that's nothing. I started to like, I'm I'm dying before five, and I gotta get to twenty-five. You know, are you kidding me? I gotta grind these out, and I realized in the conflict of those twenty-five push-ups, my weakness. And that realization of weakness reshaped my uh, preparedness for fitness, my fitness for push-ups. You try to live for Christ, two things happen. You feel weak and you're drawn to his strength. And both of them are really important. Do you feel weak this morning? Oh, well, that's fantastic. Are you drawn to the strength of Christ this morning? Oh, that's even better. Because in his strength, our weakness is made perfect. Now, thirdly, be encouraged. The Spirit of God has come to dwell in us. 7, 17 and 18, what dwells in us? So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You say, Eric, I'll tell you what and dwells in my flesh, it's sin. Well, yeah, that's true. That's Romans chapter 7. Now, to prefigure where we are headed, Romans chapter 8 is going to talk about the glory of another indwelling. It's the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 9, and 10, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life Because of righteousness, hear the word of the Lord. Don't languish and give up in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 8 is right around the corner. And it's full of the glory of the Spirit of God. Sin indwells us. Yes. But Jesus Christ indwells us by the Holy Spirit. Is the conflict formidable? Yes. But Christ is the victor. And he lives within his children. And as we yield ourselves to him, the conflict takes on a different shade and shape. And we begin to put off the old life. And behold, all things begin to become new. 2 Corinthians 2 Timothy 4.7 says this, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. Hear the word of the Lord. I love that. That's Paul's declaration toward the end of his life. Now, I read that as a child, and it meant one thing. I read that as an adolescent, and it meant another thing. I read that as a 20-year-old, and it meant vaguely something. I read it in my 30s. Now as I stumble on old manhood, I read it in my early 60s. What a glory there is in these verses. Every day I live, the more I appreciate what Paul said. See, Eric, why did he say fight? Read Romans 7, duh. Because the conflict is real and the fight is present. John White, the British psychiatrist who loved Jesus and was thoughtful and wrote several books for InterVarsity Press, wrote a book on the Christian life in which he entitled it The Fight, a takeoff from the first line, I have fought a good fight. By the way, how was the round this week? Uh, Jamie just ran a marathon. I was asking him about, you know, what would you feel like from 19 miles to 26 miles? Finishing the race. You know, we're into uh, deconversion and deconstructing our faith. And ex-vangelicals, they are called. People who chuck the faith and give up. You know what Paul said? I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. You know what? Some give up in the midst of the struggle. Some give out in the midst of the struggle. Not Paul. He set a pace that we can follow. Is the way easy? No. Is the flesh strong? Yes. Is the power of Christ present? Absolutely. Because not only is there indwelling sin, there is the indwelling presence of the risen Christ, the victor over sin, over guilt, over death, over hell. So the threefold challenge still is this morning, to fight the fight, to keep the faith, and to finish the race. May God give us grace to such ends. Let's bring our hearts out to him in prayer. Lord, you know everyone here, and you know what we need And you know where we are, and you know of the conflict. We yearn to know of the power of the presence of Christ, bringing us to yield our members to you and reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive unto Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Grant that this passage is taken by that indwelling presence of the Spirit impresses on our conscience and moves our will and shapes our mind. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's either trying to use the law in some self-righteousness project to find acceptance, that's that's not going to work. Speak to their heart. Open the door of their heart to you. Help them realize that that mercy we were singing about earlier is what rescues us from our sinful selves and brings us by your grace through faith into a relationship with you. Now, Lord, make us whole. Help us grow up to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ and continue your progressive work in our lives. Thank you for the insight brought to us from Romans chapter seven. Now help us. Jesus name I pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's respond.
1: I'm oh,
0: Anchor there is to hold on to in life and knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. And I commend you to live this week with all your might for him in the opportunities of life that will present. And as you live with all your might, giving yourself to generous obedience, hold on to this sure and steady anchor. What a way to go. A life of purpose and meaning and hope and life to that You are sent this week. Thanks for being here this morning. Hey buddy.